Welcome to an exciting and innovative approach to the ongoing process of acquiring new knowledge, state-of-the-art concepts, and management strategies in contemporary cardiovascular disorders for physicians and allied health care personnel. Good day. This is David Buick, your chairman of CCS's Perspectives in Clinical Cardiology. Welcome to our series of live podcasts addressing common clinical conundrums and dilemmas encountered by community cardiologists. This is where recognized opinion leaders will discuss practical and pragmatic solutions. If you enjoy this session, explore more resources on Perspectives in Clinical Cardiology at ccs.ca. For other exciting podcasts in contemporary clinical cardiology, visit ccs.ca forward slash PCC. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let's check it out. The topic for this session is cardiac sarcoid. Multiple uncertainties. Cardiac sarcoid is a fascinating and treatable inflammatory cardiomyopathy which has been increasingly recognized in the last few years due to a heightened clinical awareness and utilization of advanced cardiac imaging. This session will focus on the approach to an accurate and early diagnosis of subclinical but active cardiac sarcoid to prevent progressive LV dysfunction and lethal arrhythmias. Cardiac sarcoid poses a unique diagnostic dilemma due to the lack of a distinguishing gold standard tool. This session will review the common clinical red flags suggesting cardiac sarcoid and approach to imaging. A number of clinical conundrums arise related to the diagnosis, management, monitoring of treatment response, and identifying high-risk patients for sudden death will be discussed in detail. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Kirsty McIntyre from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and will be co-moderated by Dr. David Burney from Ottawa, who is an internationally recognized expert on cardiac sarcoid. I hope you will all enjoy the session on cardiac sarcoid, making the invisible visible. Thank you, David. It is a pleasure to participate in this exciting Canadian Cardiovascular Society educational series with another suitable clinical conundrum, cardiac sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis is a systemic inflammatory disease characterized by the formation of non-caseating granulomas and subsequent scarring. Sarcoidosis is a multi-system disease and can involve really any organ system. More than 90% of patients will have lung involvement However, sarcoid may also affect the liver, skin, parotid glands, spleen, gastrointestinal system, eyes, neurologic system, and heart. Sarcoidosis is seen worldwide with an estimated prevalence of 4.7 to 64 in 100,000. Reported rates are highest in individuals of Northern European and African American descent and affect women more than men. While the etiology remains unknown, there is a growing body of evidence to suggest that it is caused by an immunological response to an antigenic trigger in individuals with genetic susceptibility. Most disease occurs in individuals between 25 and 60 years of age. Sarcoidosis is unusual in people under the age of 15 or older than the age of 70. 
While we have learned a lot about sarcoidosis, there still remains a great deal of uncertainty, challenges, and controversies surrounding the diagnosis and management of this patient population. So let's review five essential things to know about cardiac sarcoidosis. First, approximately 5% of patients with extracardiac sarcoidosis have clinically manifest cardiac involvement, and it isn't always obvious. This is important as cardiac involvement in sarcoidosis is associated with a worse prognosis. Cardiac manifestations depend on the extent and location of the heart involved, as well as disease activity. Up to 25% of patients will have asymptomatic or clinically silent cardiac involvement. Manifestations of cardiac sarcoidosis, however, may include ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, high-grade atrioventricular block, and heart failure. In a study from a tertiary Canadian center, cardiac sarcoidosis was diagnosed in 11 of 32 or 34% of patients aged less than 60, presenting with unexplained Mobix 2 or third-degree AV block. In studies looking at patients with sustained monomorphic ventricular tachycardia of unknown etiology, sarcoidosis was diagnosed in 29% in one prospective study and in 16.5% of patients in another study of patients with ventricular tachycardia and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Cardiac sarcoidosis may also be missed as the underlying cause of heart failure. Examination of explanted hearts in individuals undergoing heart transplant revealed that 6.2% of patients with a clinical diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy had undiagnosed cardiac sarcoid. Point two, the diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis can be challenging. Patients with biopsy-proven extracardiac sarcoidosis should be screened for cardiac involvement. All patients should have a cardiac history, ECG, and echocardiogram. Advanced cardiac imaging with MRI or FDG-PET is recommended in patients with one or more of the following. Abnormal symptoms, such as significant palpitations, presyncope or syncope, abnormal ECG with complete left or right bundle branch block, unexplained pathological Q waves in two or more leads, sustained second or third degree AV block, sustained or non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, abnormal echocardiogram defined as regional wall motion abnormalities, wall aneurysm, basal septal thinning, or ejection fraction less than 40%. The first international expert consensus statement for cardiac sarcoidosis diagnosis was published in 2014 by the Heart Rhythm Society in collaboration with multiple other societies. There are two pathways to a diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis. The first is through histological diagnosis from myocardial tissue. Cardiac sarcoidosis is diagnosed in the presence of non-caseating granuloma on histological examination of myocardial tissue with no alternative cause identified. A clinical diagnosis can also be established from invasive and non-invasive studies. It is probable that there is cardiac sarcoidosis if there is a histological diagnosis of extracardiac sarcoidosis and one or more of the following is also present. Steroid or immunosuppressive responsive cardiomyopathy or heart block, unexplained sustained ventricular tachycardia, Mobitz type 2 second degree heart block or third degree heart block, patchy uptake on dedicated cardiac FDG PET in a pattern consistent with cardiac sarcoidosis, late gadolinium enhancement on cardiac MRI in a pattern consistent with cardiac sarcoidosis, positive gallium uptake in a pattern consistent with cardiac sarcoidosis. And this assumes that other causes for cardiac manifestations have been reasonably excluded. 
Lymph node or lung biopsy are frequently targeted first in patients with extracardiac sarcoid given the lower procedural risk and higher diagnostic yield. In patients with negative extracardiac biopsy or no extracardiac disease clinically or by whole body FDG PET, endomyocardial biopsy is necessary to confirm the diagnosis. Based on the focal nature of disease, endomyocardial biopsy has low sensitivity. Electrophysiological mapping or image-guided biopsy procedures have been proposed to increase the procedure sensitivity. Positive biopsy rates have risen to 50% with these techniques. Various imaging modalities can be used to try and determine if there's cardiac involvement of sarcoidosis. In echo, abnormalities tend to be nonspecific. Interventricular thinning, particularly basal thinning, may be seen in cardiac sarcoid. Less commonly, an increase in myocardial wall thickness may be seen, which can mimic left ventricular hypertrophy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Other manifestations may include aneurysms, left ventricular or right ventricular diastolic and systolic dysfunction, and isolated wall motion abnormalities. Such wall motion abnormalities typically occur in a non-coronary distribution. In the case of MRI, no specific pattern of late gadolinium enhancement is diagnostic for cardiac sarcoidosis. Typically, it is multifocal and patchy with sparing of the endocardial border. Late gadolinium enhancement is most often seen in the basal segments, particularly affecting the septum and lateral wall, and is typically in the epicardium and midmyocardium. Subendocardial coronary artery disease pattern is also possible, as is transmural involvement. A glucose analog, fluorodeoxyglucose, or FDG, is useful in distinguishing inflammatory lesions. Focal or focal on diffuse FDG uptake pattern is suggestive of active cardiac sarcoid. PET may be a useful disease activity marker for guiding cardiac sarcoid therapy. Appropriate dietary preparation is absolutely necessary. Such protocols typically require prolonged fasting of at least 12 hours with fatty, rich, and low-carbohydrate meals the day before. Inadequate preparation can lead to false positive FDG PET scans. Point three, the clinical management of cardiac sarcoidosis is a marathon, not a sprint. At the present time, there is no published randomized trial data regarding the role of corticosteroids or immunosuppression for the treatment of cardiac sarcoidosis. That said, most experts advise treatment of cardiac sarcoidosis despite the scarcity of data. It remains unclear whether all patients with cardiac sarcoidosis should be treated or only those with clinically manifest disease with evidence of ongoing myocardial inflammation. The optimal dosing of corticosteroids and the best techniques for assessing response to treatment remains uncertain. Most experts recommend a starting dose of 30 to 40 milligrams daily of prednisone with response to treatment evaluated after one to three months. If there has been a response, the prednisone is typically gradually reduced with a view to continue treatment for an additional nine to 12 months or more of therapy. In refractory cases, or if there are significant intolerable steroid side effects, methotrexate is commonly used as a second-line drug. Relapse can occur, and as such, it's important that clinicians follow patients for a minimum of three years after completion of treatment. Point four, cardiac sarcoidosis should be considered as a cause of high-grade AV block in young and middle-aged adults. Approximately one-fourth of unexplained atrioventricular block in adults below the age of 55 is caused by cardiac sarcoid. The most common initial manifestation of cardiac sarcoidosis is AV block requiring permanent pacing. 
In patients younger than 60 with unexplained second-degree MOBITS-2 or third-degree AV block, screening for cardiac sarcoidosis is recommended. This screening should include a high-resolution CT of the chest and advanced cardiac imaging with cardiac MRI or FDG PET. If one or more of these is positive, there is a high probability of cardiac sarcoidosis and biopsy can be useful. Biopsies should be extracardiac if feasible, otherwise guided endomyocardial biopsies can be considered. If the advanced cardiac imaging is negative and the high-resolution CT of the chest is negative, the probability of cardiac sarcoidosis is low. Before proceeding directly to pacemaker implantation for the management of AV block, it is important to consider what type of device is most appropriate for the patient. It is important to note that AV block, because of cardiac sarcoidosis, is not benign. In patients with AV block and an ejection fraction above 50%, the rate of sudden cardiac death is reported at 9% in five years. In patients with AV block and an ejection fraction between 35 and 50%, the rate of sudden cardiac death is 14% in five years. This brings us to our fifth point. Point five, an ICD may be needed as part of the treatment program for a patient with cardiac sarcoid. Sudden cardiac death can be the first presentation of cardiac sarcoidosis secondary to bradyarrhythmias. or tachyarrhythmias. As such, implantable cardioverter defibrillator implantation is generally recommended for patients with an indication for pacing given the significant risk of VT or VF during follow-up. Macro reentrant arrhythmias around areas of granulomatous scar are a common mechanism of ventricular arrhythmia. Active inflammation may also contribute to arrhythmogenesis. Survival free of major adverse cardiac events, including cardiac death, cardiac transplant, ventricular fibrillation, or treated sustained ventricular tachycardia in patients with device implantation due to heart block that remained idiopathic were significantly better than patients with AV block due to conditions like cardiac sarcoid or giant cell myocarditis. In comparison to patients with other types of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, patients with cardiac sarcoid seem to have higher rates of ICD therapies, and this is reflected in international guideline statements regarding ICD implantation in this patient population. There is a class 1 recommendation for ICD implantation in patients with cardiac sarcoidosis who have sustained ventricular tachycardia or who are the survivors of cardiac arrest, or who have a left ventricular ejection fraction of 35% or less. An ICD should also be considered in patients with cardiac sarcoidosis and left ventricular ejection fraction greater than 35% who have had syncope and or evidence of myocardial scar by cardiac MRI or PET and or have an indication for permanent pacing. In patients with cardiac sarcoidosis and ejection fraction greater than 35%, if sustained ventricular tachycardia is inducible at EP study, and in patients with cardiac sarcoidosis who have an indication for permanent pacing. Again, implantable cardioverter defibrillator implantation is generally recommended for patients with an indication for pacing, as these patients have a substantial risk of ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation and follow-up. In general, the prognosis for cardiac sarcoidosis is less favorable than for those without cardiac involvement. The degree of LV dysfunction is seen as the most important predictor of survival. More recent studies also suggest that the presence and extent of myocardial late gadolinium enhancement is an important overall prognostic factor. What remains uncertain is the prognosis of patients with clinically silent cardiac sarcoidosis. In summary, this is a complex, multi-system disease. 
While much of the data at this point in time concerning cardiac sarcoidosis in particular is retrospective and observational, there have been significant improvements in our understanding of this complex disease. About 5% of patients with sarcoidosis will have clinically manifest cardiac involvement, and another 20 to 25% have asymptomatic cardiac involvement or clinically silent disease. The extent of left ventricular dysfunction seems to be an important predictor of prognosis. Unlike other types of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, however, these patients have a significant risk of sudden death on the basis of ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. And as such, it is critical to consider ICD implantation in the right scenario. This is particularly true in patients with AV block, secondary to sarcoid, with an indication for pacing in whom the ejection fraction may be normal. In patients under the age of 60 presenting with AV block, appropriate investigations should be performed so as to exclude cardiac sarcoidosis as the root cause, given the implications for appropriate device selection and the initiation of immunosuppressive therapy when indicated. Immunosuppressive therapy with corticosteroids are the backbone of treatment. Patients requiring such investigation, assessment, and management should be referred to a center familiar with working with this complicated patient group. While many unknowns regarding best practices continue to exist, multi-center research efforts are in progress and will hopefully inform our practices moving forward. Thank you for your attention, and we look forward to answering your questions. Good. Well, thank you, Kirsty. That's a superb overview, and uh, welcome, David, to our session on sarcoid, uh, clinical perspectives in cardiology. So we're, this uh, prior is the next 15 minutes, we're going to be discussing some of the clinical scenarios and more and some of the conundrums involved with cardiac sarcoid. One of Dr. McIntyre's take-home messages was to consider cardiac sarcoid in the young patient who presents with high-grade AV block. And she quoted up to a third of this subset of patients will have cardiac sarcoid. David, one of the clinical challenges facing the community cardiologists is limited access to advanced imaging. My question revolves around the issues of guideline recommended imaging and the role of a pacemaker versus an ICD. So let's jump into our first question. As a 50-year-old man is transferred on a Friday afternoon for a pacemaker with high-grade symptomatic AV block, and he may have a slightly abnormal echo. My questions are, should all patients have a screening CT and CMR? And what if it's abnormal? Should we proceed with a PET or hybrid scanning with SPEC? And gallium scanning is recommended in the guidelines, but is this really a redundant exam with uh, advanced imaging such as CMR, CT, and PET? David, can you share us your perspectives? Yeah, firstly, David, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of research on this, and actually we have found that just a high-resolution CT thorax is, is a very, very good screening test. Um, it's much, much better than uh, just a, a simple chest entry. Because it's very important to understand that the, the heart uh, drain to the mediastinal uh, lymph nodes. You don't see your typical hyaline lymphadenopathy on a chest. Okay. So you have to do a CT thorax. And the CT thorax was actually, in, in the research that we did, um, even more sensitive and specific than, than the CMR. And our own local practice um, and the practice that we recommend for our community cardiologists is okay, do the CT uh, thorax first. Yeah, you know, if you have access to CMR, uh, for sure, go ahead. But often these patients have temporary wires in, so 
um, our own practices, we do the CT thorax. If the CT thorax is negative, we put a dual chamber pacemaker in. Uh, if the CT thorax is positive, we put the, the, the fibrillator in and then we do the PET scan afterwards, uh, you know, as an outpatient even and, and firm up on the diagnosis. You know, we, we will get the occasional patient wrong. We haven't uh, implanted an ICD in anybody incorrectly yet. Occasionally, you will have to upgrade a patient uh, that you put a pacemaker in later on, but um, CT thorax is a very good screening test. Yeah, that's great. And can you just comment on the role of gallium scanning now in 2021? Do you ever use this or should, should we recommend it? Uh, no, we never use that now, uh, and I, I don't think uh, any centres uh, do. We put that in the guidelines because, you know, there are still some centres in Japan that use gallium scanning, but I don't think in, in North America anybody uses it now. All right, well, thanks. Now, I'd like to move on to the second question here. Now, clearly, the cardiologist wishes to prevent sudden death, and I'd like to explore this role of an ICD in the patient with cardiac sarcoid. Kirsty quoted over five years a 9% sudden death rate in patients who have a preserved ejection fraction. Norton Swan in 2018 published a 24% sudden death rate over five years with an EF over 50%. So clearly these are very concerning numbers for the cardiologist managing a patient with cardiac sarcoid. My next question here is if the patient has a normal EF or perhaps maybe a mildly reduced EF of 45, 49%, a CT demonstrates hyalur adenopathy. The three questions I'd like you to review are, should all patients in 2021 receive an ICD? Just forget about a dual chamber pacemaker. And what if the CMR is negative? Should one still consider an ICD? Is it reasonable to proceed uh, with the DDD pacemaker? And finally, the role of this class 2B guideline saying an EPE study should be done for rhythmic risk stratification if the ejection fraction is over 35%. And do you actually adhere to this guideline? So I'd be interested if you could share your experience with these three areas. I agree with Kirsty. You know, I think um, the first thing is that, you know, the patients who need a pacemaker for complete heart block, there seems to be something different about those patients. I don't know whether it's because the granulomas and inflammation is affecting their Hisk-Purkinje system and that makes them more prone to VF and VT but they do have a very substantial risk of sudden heart death. So these patients who need a pacemaker seem to be at very significant risk of sudden cardiac death. So that even regardless if the rejection fraction is normal, they should definitely need, uh, you know, our own anecdotal experience is very clear and the data in the literature is very clear that their risk is really substantial. On the other end of the spectrum are the, are the patients with um, you know, burnt out cardiac sarcoid, they've got a negative PET scan, their disease is, is, is quiescent. They have a small patch of delayed enhancement. That's a very different type of patient. And we would classify that as somebody with clinically silent uh, disease. Those are patients that are at risk of sudden cardiac death, but the risk of sudden cardiac death is much, much, much less. So there is a complex algorithm. And we do do EP studies if they do have significant delayed enhancement, if their ejection fraction is between 35 and 49%, we do do EP studies. EP studies almost always negative, though. So a very different type of patient. Yeah. And we have another interesting question is like cardiac sarcoid is a disease of making the invisible visible. 
And this highlights the importance of contemporary guideline recommended imaging with PET and CMR. So if one initiates therapy, and I want to move on to this question is, you know, whether steroids, mycophenolate, methotrexate, what's the optimal timing for follow-up imaging? You know, when and how do you taper immunosuppressive therapy? What about future surveillance? So I'd really like your opinion on what's your advice on PET imaging frequency and duration, being mindful. Most cardiologists in Canada do not have immediate access to PET imaging. And finally, once the cardiac sarcoid is treated, quiescent, you have a negative PET, what's your approach to future imaging and follow-up? Like, is this really a lifelong disorder? Could you share your perspective there, David? Yeah, my, the first part of my answer is to, again, agree with Kirsty. You know, I think that it's very important that these patients are, are referred to regional centers of excellence. There's now six or seven cardiac sarcoidosis clinics in Canada. I would not refer them to your local pulmonologist or your local, local rheumatologist. You know, they have a lot of experience in, in treating pulmonary sarcoid, but they have virtually no experience in, in treating cardiac sarcoidosis. And I think people like Kirsty and me have much more experience. And it's a very different disease from pulmonary sarcoidosis. The second thing is we honestly don't know the answer to your questions. You know, if we look at the pulmonary sarcoidosis literature, there are phenotypes of the disease who've got acute disease, Lofgren syndrome, the disease sorts itself out, often doesn't need treated. There's other types, you know, they talk about chronic disease, and then there's also acute on relapsing disease. And we just don't know where cardiac sarcoidosis, um, whether it's going to fit similar phenotypes. So we're doing many projects to try and work that out at the moment. Uh, our own treatment uh, protocol is, is very similar to the one that Kirsty shows. And what we do is we give three months of treatment. We then look on a repeat PET scan for treatment response. Almost always you do see an excellent response on the your follow-up PET scan. We then uh, titrate this and um, we taper off the steroids and stop them after 12 months of treatment. And then three months later, we then repeat the PET scan to look for relapse. And we find that, you know, about two-thirds of patients relapse. So, you know, you, you may argue, you know, why are you even doing it if two-thirds relapse? My argument is, well, there's a third of the patients that you have then found that don't need chronic therapy. But the other two-thirds seem to need chronic therapy. But then the final question is, what do you mean by chronic therapy? So we then, we're going through another project at the moment where after another three years of methotrexate treatment usually or some other treatment, we stop it again and go through the process of looking for later relapse. So, you know, if you ask me these questions in, the, in about five years' time, I'll be able to tell you the better answers. So just back to this lifelong, I have a, a patient, a, a nurse, who had a pacemaker who had hyaluronidopathy in the 1990s, asymptomatic, had a pacemaker in 2000, and I started seeing her around 2006 or seven. And every year she'd ask me, Dr. Bjork, do I have cardiac sarcoid? And every year I'd do an echo. And for 10 consecutive years, the echo was normal. On year 11, she developed thinning of the basal septum in the posterior basal segment. And we did a follow-up echo six months later, and her EF had dropped to 40%. We did a PET scan, and it was positive. That was for, and she asked me every year for 10 consecutive years. So I was thinking that a lot of these patients, maybe it is lifelong, and we should be doing an echo, even if they have normal V function, because you never know when it may reactivate. Kirsty, what's your opinion? And David, 
can you share your perspective on that one? It's definitely a, a challenging question that I don't really think we know the answer to yet, but those sorts of stories definitely are compelling for periodic evaluation of LV function. And I kind of to, to David Burney's point earlier, there seems to be something different about the patient with heart block, whether it's the burden of disease that's, that's led them to have that presentation or the, or the degree of granuloma in the septum is hard to say, but it's definitely important. And then it brings you to the next question. Do you then upgrade that person to 11 years in? And if their LV function isn't normal, is it a simple dual chamber ICD or a CRT? So the more we learn, the more questions arise for sure. David, any comments on this lifelong surveillance for the cardiologists taking care of these patients? Should they be seeing them once a year? Is it like heart failure? Uh, again, I, I would advocate for, for referring to centres of excellence and expertise. And then, yeah, we follow them, you know, like we, we're planning to follow them lifelong because we really don't know the answer. There's definitely a group of patients who have got chronic, chronic disease. But, you know, your patient, although they've got chronic disease, they've got a very indolent disease form of the disease as well. You know, they had it for 10 years before they started to get a little bit of LV function. So, you know, they had a very low-grade form of the disease. You'd upgrade to the ICD is a difficult one, you know, because she's proven herself to have a very indolent form of the disease. My concern always is if you're going to treat her with steroids, because all of a sudden you're going to interfere with the granuloma, and the, and the, and that actually may we don't know this yet, but there is some suspicion that steroids may actually initially be prorhythmic in the acute phase. So, you know, if you, if you were going to give that patient steroids, I would definitely upgrade them to, to ICD first. If you weren't going to give them steroids, then a very, very tough case. So you're pro, while you're on treatment, in your great article in the Jack, and I encourage everyone to read it on cardiac sarcoid, published with David as, as the lead author, you're a, a strong advocate of prednisone right off the bat. What if the patient has diabetes, hypertension, maybe uh, arthritis, what's your feeling on going to mycophenolate or methotrexate or even maybe uh, Imuran? Can you comment on, should we be treating all these patients with prednisone 30 to 40 milligrams daily for three months? Or should we, can we look at steroid sparing agents? Again, we don't know the answer to that question. And actually, what we're doing uh, is we've got a clinical trial that we've just uh, started and we're leading in Ottawa. There's about 30 centres in the world who are in the study. Uh, we have 25 patients. And we're actually looking at exactly that question. We're randomising patients to prednisone, standard doses of prednisone against low dose, a combination of low dose prednisone and methotrexate. So, so again, if we repeat this webinar in five years' time, I'll, I'll let you know the answer to that. The only other comment is I have reduced uh, the maximum dose that we're giving now. We're not giving more than 30 milligrams to anybody. Again, uh, some recent data coming out. Again, our own anecdotal experience, you know, 30 milligrams seems to be enough to completely switch off the disease. You both know there, there's definitely a differential diagnosis for heart block in the young patients. So I'm wondering how you in Ottawa would approach differentiating between conditions like giant cell myocarditis, Lyme disease, and cardiac sarcoidosis? Yeah, Lyme disease is endemic in the Ottawa Valley now, so we, we always check for, for Lyme disease, test for Lyme disease. The history is also very important. Obviously, the CT thorax is, is key here as well. 
Giant cell myocarditis always worries me that we're going to miss a giant cell myocarditis, but the clue for that is, is the troponin. Troponin, when patients with cardiac sarcoidosis present with heart block, the troponin is often normal or only minimally elevated. Whereas if you have a patient with um, giant cell myocarditis, the troponin is usually very substantially elevated. So that's the other clue. The third clue is that the PET scan looks very different between giant cell myocarditis and cardiac sarcoidosis, specifically the whole body PET scan looks very different. So those are the, the three clues. And just while we're on the biopsy, can you just share your experience on when do you proceed with a cardiac biopsy? Say your CMR uh, suggests there's uh, LG, late gadolinium enhancement and the patient may have uh, bundle, left bundle branch block and they might have some wall thinning characteristic echo findings. When do you consider an endomyocardial biopsy? Christy mentioned in the guidelines, uh, it's a patchy uptake, and my understanding, it's about a 25% positivity. So it's not a high-yield biopsy. Can you tell us when you would approach a patient with a, a biopsy? Yeah, you know, we're actually just about to rewrite our guideline um, because to align with other general sarcoidosis guidelines, there's a, there's a move in the field to go away from requiring a positive biopsy in all patients. And sometimes, you know, the, the clinical features and uh, the imaging features are so clear. You know, you see a young patient, 55-year-old with complete heart block, who's got a, a PET scan that lights up like a Christmas tree. There's nothing else going on there apart from cardiac sarcoidosis. So we, we, we've actually stopped biopsying a lot of these patients now. So that's the first thing. So the second thing is, you know, the EMB, we do some of them. Um, it's usually just in borderline difficult cases that we're not clear about uh, the diagnosis. We do them all um, with CARTO guidance. CARTO is our, our EP imaging system where we actually do um, endocardial voltage mapping. And then what we do is we target the areas of low voltage. But it's really the exception that we actually do a biopsy to these uh, EMB these days. Um, if we are in doubt about giant cell as opposed to cardiac sarcoidosis, we do a biopsy then. Yeah. Okay, Kirsty, any other questions? Uh, kind of in a similar vein, um, I was wondering from the audience if you could discuss uh, isolated cardiac sarcoidosis and, and how often you'll see a negative high-resolution CT of the chest but a positive PET scan. I know this is a great question and a lot of uh, confusion in the literature about this. So, and I think it's important that uh, the terminology is clear. So, clinically isolated cardiac sarcoidosis is quite common, meaning patients uh, often only have symptoms of, of sarcoidosis in their heart. So, they don't have skin disease, they don't have joint disease, they don't have lung symptomatic lung disease. So, clinically isolated cardiac sarcoidosis is, is quite common. However, imaging isolated cardiac sarcoidosis is very rare. So meaning that you will always, almost always see something else, CT thorax showing mediastinal lymphadenopathy, or the whole body PET scan um, will almost always show some FDG uptake elsewhere in the body, spleen, liver, um, lymph nodes somewhere. So I'm, I'm always very cautious. If I, just, if I see a patient with... And the doctor is very concerned about truly imaging isolated cardiac sarcoidosis, meaning you've only got a, 
a positive cardiac PET and a negative whole body PET. I'm very concerned there's something else going on that they have another, either another disease or it's a false positive PET scan. So, you know, I've seen some patients, some physicians, not in this country, but in other countries, give these patients empiric steroids and then repeat the scan uh, three months later. I think that's the wrong thing to do. I think if you're in that situation, you, you can, you know, email me at any time, day or night, and I'll, I'll have an answer to you within an, an hour about a cardiac sarcoidosis question. Just, uh, Kirsty did talk about ventricular tachycardia. So if we have a young patient who presents with ventricular tachycardia, I think we'd all agree a CMR would be indicated, a PET maybe not. And do you ever find difficulty trying to differentiate ARVD from cardiac sarcoid? Because clearly there's a, a significant different approach to both of those disorders. Can you comment on that? Yeah, no, that's another great question. Yeah, we've had a number of patients uh, in our own practice, and there's also some published papers on exactly this uh, point, but there is one very important clinical clue. So, you know, if you have a patient that you're very, very sure they've got ARVC, they've got RV dysfunction, they've got uh, VT coming from the right ventricle, uh, they've got an epsilon wave, but the clue is that if they also have any degree of heart block, almost always not uh, ARVC and it's almost uh, cardiac sarcoidosis. Patients, for some reason with ARVC, almost never got get heart block. But it's, if you see that combination of the VT with the heart block, it's not ARVC, it's, it's probably cardiac sarcoidosis. Great points, yeah. All right, well, we're going to read, we're coming up about 45 minutes, which is the end of our session. I want to thank uh, Dr. McIntyre, Dr. Bernie. It's been a great uh, educational learning experience as always. Uh, we can always learn on this really fascinating disorder. I'd like to thank our audience for participating. Send in your comments. We're always looking for ideas. I'd like to thank everyone for attending and uh, have a great evening. Thank you for joining us today for Perspectives in Clinical Cardiology. Visit ccs.ca for future programming Download five key take-home messages and register for future programs. Thank you to the New Brunswick Heart Center for their support of this program.